should definitely talk about the climate impacts, but every time energy efficiency comes up, I just want to scream from the rooftops, it's cool. It makes you more comfortable. It makes your life better. Why wouldn't you want to use the newest, coolest, and most cost-effective technologies? So we've got to continue to support that from the policy level. Welcome to Energy Sense, the podcast that explores the most fascinating trends, news, and ideas in energy efficiency. I'm Chris Rawlings, the Chief Energy Officer of VLED. My guest today is JC Kibbe. JC is a clean energy advocate with the Natural Resources Defense Council, advocating on behalf of Illinois, where he works to advance policies that support clean, equitable energy and a transition away from fossil fuels. JC, thanks for being here. Glad to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. So I heard you have a little bit of a history in uh, the coal mines or your family does. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your experience with that? Sure. Yeah. So it's a funny position for me doing what I do to move us away from fossil fuels because my family has a, a generations long relationship with coal in particular. So my dad um, grew up in Appalachia, was born just outside Huntington, West Virginia, uh, had members of his family that worked in the coal mines. Some of them worked in some of the oil refineries down there. So the idea of a just transition is really important to me because I've seen firsthand the impacts um, that changes in our economy can have on these communities that are reliant on fossil fuels. So we know that we have to make these transitions, but I understand you know, better than, than many folks how important it is that we support the workers and we support the communities that are impacted. So he left uh, Appalachia and West Virginia to find other opportunities in part because he, as he's told me, didn't want to go down in those coal mines. That didn't look like a life that he wanted. So he moved to Michigan, Lansing, Michigan, which is where I grew up. And there were several coal plants in that community. There were three coal plants that I could walk to from my house. And it was a weird experience for me because you hear about the health impacts of coal plants. And sometimes people living in those communities don't even know. Uh, I just knew that I got sick a lot, missed a lot of school, but there was no bright flashing red sign on my lawn that said, hey, this is because of the coal plants. So these health impacts are subtle and insidious. And I watched one of those plants close too. And we're fortunate that, you know, it wasn't a town of a thousand people where this was sort of the only economic game in town. But I did see the impact it had uh, on the downtown, on the workers, on the city. uh, And that really, again, drove home for me how important the just transition piece of this is. So I hold simultaneously in my mind that we have to move away from fossil fuels as quickly as we can, but also that we have to do right by the workers and communities, not only because it's politically important, but also because it's the right thing to do. Sounds like you definitely have a passion for it, having uh, understood the impacts of it directly. So what does your day-to-day look like, JC? I mean, how are you uh, impacting the the community and, and making sure that these initiatives are pushed forward? On a day-to-day level, you might find me um, knee-deep in policy research and spreadsheets uh, looking at power sector data or in uh, legislation that other states have passed, uh, helping to write policies in the state of Illinois. You might find me talking with legislators in their offices or in the Capitol. I'm also fortunate to work with a lot of grassroots leaders around the state. There are tremendously passionate folks who care about clean air, care about a livable climate, and they are in the vast uh, majority. And so to have an opportunity to work with those people who are in some of the communities that are being impacted, really care about these issues is one of my favorite things about my job. You know, you mentioned one of those coal plants shutting down in your hometown of Lansing, the Ottawa Street Power Plant that shut down in 1993, was revamped in 2007. 
insurance agency came in, redeveloped the plant, achieved LEED Gold certification, so environmentally friendly, uh, and provided 500 jobs. But there was that 15-year gap between 1993 and 2007. When you talk about transitioning these communities away from coal what does that transition look like? So how are you addressing that gap and addressing those workforce development and transition issues going from coal to clean energy? I'm glad you asked. Even though the Ottawa Street plant kind of ended in a good place with it getting redeveloped and being a success story for downtown, I think it is also a little bit of a case study in what happens when a coal plant closes and we don't have a plan for transition. And so that's what's happening right now in Illinois coal generation has gone down two-thirds in the last 10 years. If you would have told me in 2005 that that is the trajectory that coal generation would take between 2010 and now, I wouldn't have believed you. So just strictly from market forces, the decline of coal has been really incredible. And so a lot of these plants have closed, but, but we haven't had a plan. And there haven't been systems in place to support those communities. And that is one of the things that I have been working on on the Clean Energy Jobs Act in Illinois and in just transition policy provisions. So one uh, hit that happens when a coal plant closes, schools are funded with property taxes. And often, particularly in smaller communities, a coal plant or another power plant may be the largest property taxpayer in the area. And so I've talked to school superintendents who are looking down the barrel of a huge hole in their budget the year after one of these plants closes with no obvious way to replace it. So one thing that we propose in the Clean Energy Jobs Act, which has also been adopted in other legislative proposals in Illinois, including the governor's bill, the Consumers and Climate First Act, is to provide uh, grants to replace the property taxes in these communities for up to five years after a plant closes. So they're not getting that hit to their education system. Because when you take a hit to your economy like that, education is exactly where you need to be investing and where you need to continue to be able to provide support so you can train those workers, train those entrepreneurs for the next generation. So I think that's part of it on a very basic level is just supporting those property taxes. Also providing, you know, really just traditional economic development can do wonders in these communities. There are certainly pieces of that in the legislation as well. I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but you see an example of this on the Ottawa Street station, how they were able to redevelop that and actually pull it together was they got a bunch of different grants from a bunch of different economic development programs. And none of them had at the top of the page, coal just transition program, but it was redeveloping a, a site that wasn't being used well. It was downtown redevelopment. So they patched together that money, which is incredible that they could do it, but also a testament to we've got to make it easier. We've got to provide the support for these towns to do that economic development. And that's part of what we do as well in the legislation is support from the state Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity to support local officials with doing that economic development. There's also provisions to support the workers. So they are so we're protecting their retirement savings. Uh, and their pensions, which is something that we've seen in other states. Fossil fuel companies will close a mine, they'll close a plant, they'll declare bankruptcy, they'll shed all their pension obligations, and then they open up again, uh, and their workers are left without their pensions and sometimes without their union contracts. And so we've done everything we can to avoid that happening to the workers here, and also to provide them with adequate notice when a plant is going to shut down. And I want to be honest that there's no silver bullet Right. It's not like we can snap our fingers and, you know, all these communities are going to be completely fine overnight. Every economic transition is challenging. It takes time. It takes deliberate effort. 
And lastly, I'll just say that the clean energy economy can be a part of this too. A lot of times the transmission in these areas where there's a power plant located when it closes, there's a lot of transmission capacity that's not being used. And that's a great place to put a, a wind facility or a solar facility. So that's one of the other things in the bill is support to do solar development on the actual sites where some of these now closed coal plants are located. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. There's not a silver bullet uh, and this isn't going to happen overnight, although we do need to hit these goals and we've highlighted the importance of that as a contractor and someone who is currently seeing the gap in the workforce development. You know, it's really hard to find labor these days. It's hard to get these folks in um, technical tracks, electricians, uh, HVAC technicians, that sort of thing. You mentioned in the Clean Energy Jobs Act, there's a contractor incubator, there's a clean jobs workforce hub. There have been programs around the country that have done similar things, but I really think that Illinois, if we, if we implement these training hubs, if we implement these contractor incubators, that we are going to be one of the leaders in this space. I don't think that there has been this kind of deliberate full-scale job training initiative for the clean energy economy that's happened anywhere else in the same way. The president talks about building back better. And I was just having a conversation about this recently. And I think building back better for whom is a really important part of that question. One of the things that we do in this legislation is that we target that job training in the areas that most need it. And so part of that is areas that have experienced fossil fuel closures, so places where there's a closed coal plant, a closed coal mine, et cetera. So prioritizing not only the geography, but the people that are affected, like former plant workers, and also communities that have been, frankly, left behind by the energy economy so far, disinvested communities where predominantly people with lower incomes or people of color live, who have not only often been left out of the economic benefits of our current sort of dirty energy economy, but also have often experienced the worst impacts of that economy in terms of pollution and other things that, you know, that they're overburdened with. So there's no way ultimately to fully make that right for those communities. But I think part of trying to get our hands to around righting some of those wrongs is making sure that in the clean energy economy, that we are sharing those benefits as broadly as we can. And that in the communities that have lost a part of their economy through fossil fuel closures or that never got those benefits in the first place, that they are getting included and centered in the clean energy economy and targeting these training programs is part of how we do that. So let's leave the, the state level for a second and hop up to the federal level. Where do you see federal funding coming down, either through the infrastructure bill or other bills that are being passed post-COVID? Where do you see that money flowing in regards to uh, specifically energy and some of these topics that we've been discussing? Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind when we talk about the federal uh, reconciliation bill is this federal some people call it a clean energy standard. It's technically a little different than that. It's a, it's a clean electricity payment program. And it basically incentivizes utilities across the country to meet an 80% renewable energy standard by 2030. This would be the most substantive piece of federal climate policy probably in history. And so this is really, really critical for hitting our climate goals and also for protecting clean air from the perspective of economic opportunity, again, there would be payments um, that would be made to utilities who are able to hit this 80% goal and who are making progress along that 80% goal, and then financial disincentives if they weren't doing that. So there's already 
systems in place to build clean energy. <laughs> and there are already utilities that are doing it. And I think this is really just accelerating a trend that we know is already taking off. Like the economics of clean energy today are great. Another thing that I couldn't have imagined, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago that the two cheapest forms of energy today would be wind and solar. But when we look at the trajectory that we have to hit for the growth of clean energy in order to hit our climate goals, we've got to give it a little bit of a kick in the butt. And I think that that's what this 80% federal standard is all about. So on the job side and the investment side, I'd say that we already know that wind turbine technician and solar panel installer are two of the fastest growing jobs in the country already, even without ambitious federal climate policy. And that these are especially fast growing jobs in rural areas as well, many of whom, at least here in Illinois, are dealing with economic decline. So I think we're talking about a huge amount of investment and a huge amount of jobs if we have a federal initiative that's really kickstarting renewable energy in that way. We would also talk about the uh, transportation sector, strong federal standards for clean cars and clean trucks. We heard recently from President Biden that he's setting a goal of 50% of new car sales to be electric by 2030. That's another big opportunity for job growth. We just saw our partner organization, E2, which stands for Environmental Entrepreneurs, just released a report today called Clean Jobs Midwest that looks at the growth of clean jobs, unsurprisingly, in the Midwest, and found that advanced transportation was one of the fastest growing sectors, particularly in Illinois. So that's another big one where we've got these climate benefits, health benefits, and job and economic benefits that are all going hand in hand with that policy. Lastly, I'll say on the transmission side, this is really important. It doesn't get talked about quite as much. Don't worry. I'm not going to drag us into an arcane half hour transmission conversation, but I'll just say that to get to where we know we have to get for the clean energy economy, to get to an 80%, 100% clean energy, we have to build a lot more transmission um, and we have to make sure that we have the institutions in place to do that. So, uh, Representative Sean Kasten has been doing some great work on this. I don't know if you've seen his hot FERC summer uh, stuff, but he really talks about how the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has an opportunity to unlock a lot of economic potential by supporting the build out of more transmission because where transmission goes, renewable energy, jobs, and economic growth uh, follow. So not, as, not quite as sexy as some of the other ones, but really, really important to enabling clean energy and job growth. I agree. And as someone in energy efficiency, I can talk about being in an industry that's not as sexy as, uh, you know, solar or wind, but 30% of energy that buildings consume is completely lost through waste. That's obviously an area and a space that we're in day to day. We've seen over the years, over the last seven years, uh, how important it is to have local utility rebates, federal tax incentives, whether it's 179D or financing mechanisms such as CPACE. You know, obviously we have the investment tax credits that are being extended for solar. My question is, what happens when that stuff goes away? A lot of times it is a fiscal decision strictly for a business owner to implement an energy conservation measures. Other times it's really just a behavioral science decision. They just want to feel like they're getting something back. Is the industry ready for a transition away from these services being subsidized at, at all these levels? I would say we have to continue to prioritize energy efficiency in policy. It is absolutely critical. It is the 
The cheapest kilowatt of energy is the one you never use. A uh, huge percentage of the gains that we have made in the last you know, 20 or 30 years in terms of reducing the energy intensity of our economy, in terms of reducing our total amount of emissions has come through energy efficiency. So that is, I didn't talk about it up front, but that is another one of the things we're doing in this legislation because we cannot let our foot up off the gas. Maybe that's not a great metaphor, but we have to continue moving forward with these energy efficiency initiatives. And this bill would propose to extend those out to 2035 in Illinois. So I, I don't know as much about where those are headed on, on the federal level, but I'll say at the state level, we have to keep them going. It's so important. And I'll also say, since you're an energy efficiency guy and we're talking about the incentives and the reasons that people do it, I think sometimes the thing that gets lost is people talk about energy efficiency measures like there's some kind of hair shirt. Like it's this unpleasant thing that you have to do, that you have to sacrifice, you know, in order to help the environment. But like speaking as a guy looking through his double pane windows right now who just set his nest to respond to time varying rates, it's like energy efficiency measures also just like make me more comfortable and like make my life better. And it's like cool to have an app on the phone where you can like set the temperature in your house. And so we should definitely talk about the cost. We should definitely talk about the climate impacts. But every time energy efficiency comes up, I just want to scream from the rooftops. It's cool. It makes you more comfortable. It makes your life better. It's all those things. When people rail against energy efficiency, it's like people saying that we should still be you know, riding in horse buggies or like using an iPhone 4. Why wouldn't you want to use the newest, coolest and most cost effective technologies? So we've got to continue to support that from the policy level. Yeah. And that's music to my ears, JC, to be honest with you. And, and I'll tell you from my experience, energy efficiency has been everything from, you know, improving low income housing, removing health threats such as gas leaks, improving the lighting in senior living facilities, which also impacts their health. So I think we've all understood the impact and the correlation between energy efficiency and the healthiness of these buildings and the building occupants, uh, obviously due to COVID. I know here in Virginia, you know, we've already got legislation where we've committed over $800 million over the next 10 years for energy efficiency programs. We've got renewable energy goals that we're going to meet at the state level. So all good things on, on that front. We have listeners in all areas of the energy industry. What's one thing we should all be thinking about as it relates to a clean energy future? I've got a couple. If I just get one, uh, since everybody here is excited about the energy efficiency piece of it, I have to say, you know, we think a lot about appliances in terms of energy efficiency. We think about a lot about building envelope improvements. But I think what is just starting to hit its stride in the way that renewable energy has, and I think we're right on the cusp of electric vehicles, is that there are huge opportunities for modern, efficient, electric building measures. So I'm talking about heat pumps, I'm talking about smart water heaters, and we talked about how transportation is the biggest piece of our carbon emissions, power sector not far behind that, but buildings are not far behind that. And so this is an opportunity again where energy efficiency and an opportunity for climate and health impacts come into play. We know that the health impacts of gas appliances, sometimes you know, we found that there are health impacts to that, particularly in, in older homes, particularly who are people who are using the older appliances. 
So this is exactly what I'm talking about when I say things that save money that are also fun to use and also make more comfortable. It's like, I think that this is going to be one of the next big things when we look at climate action and that in a couple of years, everybody is going to be talking about modern, efficient electric appliances and heat pumps, the way that electric vehicles and solar panels are hot today. Absolutely. And uh, just add one thing to answer my own question here. I, I really think our opportunity that we have to incorporate technology into the infrastructure that we're building is going to help us scale this thing for years to come, whether it's advanced metering infrastructure or being able to collect the data to prove out programs that we're trying to implement. We need to have a focus on technology. Obviously, we need to have a focus on the security of that technology and that data. But I think we're all trending in, in the right direction. So JC, I wanted to ask you a question in regards to maybe some tips and advice you can give to our listeners. Um, if someone's out there looking at getting into the energy industry, whether they're graduating high school, college, maybe a contractor out in the field interested specifically in energy, uh, what's some tips that you might give them on maybe where to start? Well, there are so many different job opportunities in the energy industry in a way that I think we don't always necessarily think about. Like we think about the solar panel installer, we think about the the wind turbine technician or the man or the woman up working on the utility lines. But there's also at those same companies, there are people that are doing the marketing, people that are doing the communications. And so if you want to get in the energy industry, whatever your interest is, there's probably some kind of opportunity there. So when we talk about the more direct like literally putting the infrastructure and the steel in the ground. I was just talking to a, a high school teacher yesterday who was saying that they have a program that allows high school students to, in the afternoon, leave and go participate in a career like internship, and that one of those is in the clean energy industry. So I think having a full pipeline that is in education and that is preparing those workers is really critical. And so programs like that one are part of it. Programs like the training hubs that we're trying to create through the Clean Energy Jobs Act are part of it. There's lots of great opportunities for apprenticeship programs and training programs in those technical skills, both through labor unions and also at a lot of community colleges. And then, you know, there's opportunities in the policy space and the organizing space as well. And as you can testify, all kinds of different opportunities in the energy efficiency economy. So I would say there's some great training programs out there, but also if like a, what you traditionally think of as an energy job isn't necessarily your thing, there's still ways for you to be a part of that industry and a part of that growth in your area of expertise, whatever it is. Well, JC, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I really enjoyed talking to you. I think our listeners got some good insight from a policy perspective. Thanks so much for having me today, Chris. Great talking with you. On behalf of VLED, we appreciate you listening to the Energy Sense podcast today. Please make sure to subscribe, share with a friend, download wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and we'll see you next time.